What is up, guys? We are back again with another episode of the podcast. And on today's episode, we are not joined by Gary. Gary is off doing some doctoring stuff. I think he's on placement. So instead, we've decided to get someone who has been on the podcast before. So those of you who are regular listeners, you've probably heard him speak. Um, But he is here to help us answer the questions we have around or to discuss, I suppose, the questions we have around this whole exercise and health exercise or medical exercise series that we're doing because there's a few things related specifically to sarcopenia, muscle mass and older age, um, which I think he is very well positioned to to talk about. So Richie, maybe you'll uh, let people know who you are, what you do and why you're someone that could potentially help us with these kind of questions we have around this stuff. Just out of curiosity, am I well positioned to talk about this because I'm old? Was that was that the gag that you were getting? Well, I, I didn't really want to bring that up, but yeah, like you know, there's a bit of grain around the edges, you know, right in there. Okay. <laughs> um, hello, uh, yeah, um, I'm Richie. Uh, should, like, yeah, I'll tell you what I do. I'm uh, doing a PhD in Liverpool John Moores University, and my area of research focuses on the role of muscle mass in reducing risk of cardiac events in people who've already had a cardiac event. So secondary prevention. Um, and yeah, hopefully I'll be finished with that very soon. As I was chatting with you earlier, um, this week would be great. Because I'm done with it. You, you see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. It's, yeah. it's almost there, you know? Hopefully it's not going to be a train, so. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's always the hope. Um, so yeah, as you can imagine, Richie is someone that is very well positioned to discuss this stuff because he's actually involved in a few different areas that we talk about a lot with regards to we'll say heart health we'll call it that kind of stuff you know it's like you know we talk about heart disease a lot on the podcast he's also well positioned to talk about the more muscle mass related stuff you know the strength related stuff and obviously sarcopenia again we'll we'll talk about that what that means and all that kind of stuff in, in a second so you're very you're very well positioned to talk about this stuff right but what are we actually talking about, right? Right. So the thing about this is, and we, we talked about in the last podcast, and um, for those of you who, who listened to it, we talked about the role of exercise in health and longevity, you know? And one of the things that you see consistently in the research is that, well, to an extent, higher levels of muscle mass are protective, right? Higher levels of strength are protective. And what are they protective of? Well, they're protective of health and longevity, you know? And we also, we've talked about it a few times previously on the podcast, there is this little bit of a delineation between, you know, lifespan and health span and lifespan being like the number of years in your, in your life and health span being the, like, we'll call it the quality of those years and exercise, strength, muscle mass all seem to, you know, get both. They, they seem to be one of the few things that seem to target both. You know, you you see certain drugs, certain interventions, certain protocols, maybe they improve the quality of your life, but they don't necessarily include or uh, increase the quantity of your life, right? Or vice versa, you might see things that, you know, increase the quantity of your life, but you, you look, you're looking at that intervention and going, Jesus, my, the quality of my life would probably be uh, severely impacted by doing that, right? But exercise seems to be one that improves the the quality of your life and improves the quantity of your life, right? So, Richie, what's the story here? What's the story with muscle mass and strength? How is this playing a role in health and longevity? Like, what's going on here? Uh, Wow, broad question. Um, Yeah, so 
yeah, we do see a lot of associations between muscle mass and not just muscle mass, like muscle strength itself and muscle function um, seems to be uh, quite well associated with, with a longer life and a better quality of life. And there, there are a few reasons from that. If we just go with the, um, the quality of life stuff first, um, so this is kind of getting into an area that uh, I'm, I'm relatively uh, new to myself, which is qualitative research. And just for anybody who's not familiar, like with science, we have quantitative research and we've got qualitative research and quantitative research is all to do with numbers. So, you know, you can, uh, I'll do some, a study and I'll be able to get some numbers at the end of it say, okay, muscle mass increased by this much, muscle strength increased by this much, um, cholesterol dropped by this. Okay. And that gives me a nice number and I can say, okay, this causes this to drop by whatever percent. Beautiful, lovely numbers. And that's, that's the stuff that most people would think of as a scientist. They'd be like, scientist, they quantify things. It's like, exactly. measure this, how much of this, whatever. But, but now, and it's starting to become more popular and it, for good reason, there's qualitative research, which some people will look at as the kind of airy, fairy, hippy-dippy kind of side of things, because what we're doing is we're asking about feelings and experiences. And we want to ask people, how are you doing? How did that feel, et cetera? What do you think of this? Um, and for scientists who are used to numbers, that's like, oh God, what, what am I supposed to do with that? It's really, really important because as you said, quality of life is important. And just to give an example, um, we're doing a, a research study at the moment where we're actively trying to get um, uh, people who've had a cardiac event to increase their muscle mass. And some of the qualitative data that we've received from that this so far has been fantastic because one thing that everybody has said so far is that their confidence has increased. And you ask why? And well, these people have had a, a cardiac event and that's that's going to, you know, knock you for sticks and you're going to suddenly feel like, God, what has happened to my life? What am I, can I do this? Can I do that? I'm not sure if I'm, I'm going to be alive in, in six months time. These people feel more confident about every aspect of their life that, that we've spoken about. They, they feel more confident in their work because they can go to work more confidently. They're getting com uh, compliments from their friends. They um, feel like they are more capable of doing daily chores. And while like doing the daily chores themselves is an important fact. And when I, when, I, when I say that, like being able to get out of bed easily in the morning, be able to stand up from a chair, being able to play with your grandkids, put the groceries away, carry your groceries. Those are things that are really important to do. But also the feeling that I'm able to do that when previously I wasn't or I was less able to do that. That's a huge thing for how people feel. Um, and that's important for us as, as scientists to, to, to look into. Because, you know, it's great to say, you know, these numbers are fantastic, but you know, if somebody is putting on more muscle and put on like three kilos in the last um, 12 months, 12 weeks, and you know, they're stronger and their cholesterol is better, but they feel like absolute shit. What, what good is it? Like, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're increasing lifespan, but not necessarily health span, um, or at least you're not their quality of life. But another yeah. aspect of just that then. That. Just on that, like you see a lot, you see a lot of research that they'll talk about a specific protocol. For example, I'm just thinking of one, I was actually reading it earlier on because I was rehashing some thoughts that I had. Um, it was on like increasing VO2 max. And there's this protocol that they basically did, which was on and off days. So one day you would do like high intensity intervals and the next day you'd do like continuous cardio. So you could say it's more aerobic, but they basically got them to run as fast as they, they could. So it's not really aerobic. Um, and they basically just alternated those days and they did it for 10 weeks, right? And that was th that paper showed the highest as far as i'm aware at least highest increase in vo2 max in anyone right but then when they asked the people like oh are you going to continue with this 
like I'm pretty sure every single one of them was like, no, I, I'm not going to continue with this. This is so draining. Like there's no way I could continue with this beyond the, the 10 week mark, you know? So like you might be someone like a quantitative absolutist being like, all that matters is, you know, the data, all that matters is like the, the, the actual figures, the facts, whatever. But if we ignore the, the quantitative stuff, like, or sorry, the, the qualitative stuff, like, it's actually useless. Like we're talking about the real world. Like, yeah, cool. We want to know the best protocols in a lab or in a you know, clinical setting or whatever, you know, like I want my doctor to be like, right, look, this, this chemotherapeutic is going to be fucking awful for you, but you only need to be on it for three months or whatever. You know, I'm like, okay, look, there's a trade-off there. It's the best one for the job, etc. Right. But if we're talking about stuff that people have to do for the rest of their life, I, I want some qualitative, you know, I want to know how they felt. I want to know what that actually did to them in terms of how they felt day to day, in terms of how they felt about themselves, et cetera. No, uh, absolutely. Because yeah, you, you need to know if somebody's going to continue with that. And, and like, that's one of the questions that we have for our, like our, our end point interview is, are you going to continue? Uh, yeah. Do you think you will continue with a, this exercise, B this diet? Um, and so far from everybody that we've had, who's finished their 12 weeks, it's like, yes, but not just yes, it's yes, definitely. They all say they enjoy the program. And look, I, I will say I, I, I designed the program and I designed it specifically to be one simple and to be do game like, you know, just like as in, you know, the whole goal, the whole goal is kind of eventually to progress with the weights. And this is how you progress with the weights. And, you know, we, we know gamifying things makes them a little bit more enjoyable, but they've all loved it. They've lo- loved getting stronger. They've loved seeing the weights going up and increasing with what they're doing. And then with the diet, they all seem really, really happy with it as well. Um, and Again, that's how you structure the diet. You don't like you can give somebody the strictest diet in the world for three months in a metabolic ward study, and you can say, "Here, follow this. This will happen," and you can be absolutely right. But then you say, "Are you going to follow this?" And you go out, like, "Fuck no! Like that was horrendous. I, I don't ever want to eat like that again." But they're happy doing what we're doing because it's not overly strict. It's just some simple changes to their diets to make it, you know, more conductive to what we want to happen with the with um with our research. With that said, so obviously we're doing the qualitative side and the qualitative side is really, really important. Um, I'm not going completely airy-fairy and we are still looking at the quantitative stuff. So we are looking at muscle size, we are looking at strength, we are looking at um, uh, blood lipids and, and other aspects of cardiometabolic health as well. Um, and like on that side, like kind of getting back to your original question, which was like about, you know, two weeks ago, um, we, what, like, why does muscle size, why does muscle strength contribute to health? Then we can also look at like, I think one of the, the better aspects in metabolic health that's uh, researched is actually the, the relationship between muscle size and blood sugar control. And we know that not only muscles, like larger muscles, but also, also healthier muscles. So those are generally muscles that are more active, muscles that have less uh, intramuscular fat within them. And those are usually muscles that are exercised regularly are healthier. Uh, they are much more efficient at taking up glucose from our bloodstream when we eat glucose and we get one of those dreaded glucose spikes that everybody's terrified of, um, which are you know perfectly normal. Um, but it does help us to maintain and manage blood glucose much more effectively. And this is why exercise is so good for, for people who are suffering from type 2 diabetes. So a, we, we see that there is an association um, between higher levels of muscle mass and strength um, and uh, insulin sensitivity. So the ability to actually use insulin to take up glucose from our bloodstream. So that's the let's say the, the, the diabetes side of things in the, uh, cardiac side of things. So there is a very, very nice association between muscle size and, um, and cardiac outcomes. 
Um, and there seems to be, you've probably heard of the obesity paradox. Um, and like there, there's, obese, uh, there's an obesity paradox in, in many different areas of, of kind of health science. But one of them in cardiac health is if you look at a cardiac population, you'll often see that the people with higher BMIs tend to live longer than those with a lower BMI to a certain extent. And, and the reason for that, well, one of the reasons we think that is, is because those with a higher BMI also tend to have higher levels of muscle mass. And if you look, if you kind of stratify this according to people with, let's say, low levels of muscle and then high levels of fat or low levels of fat and then higher levels of muscle, low levels of fat, higher levels of fat. Those who seem to be the, the, the least healthy are the ones with the lowest levels of muscle and the lowest levels of fat. And you can obviously um, see, okay, there's some association with frailty there. But then, uh, you know, higher levels of muscle in general tend to be associated with much higher levels of basically surviving and living longer if you've had one of these conditions. And we're not 100% sure why that is. Um, we do think that it can potentially be down to some of the, what we call um, uh, anti-inflammatory cytokines that are produced by muscle. So they're also known as myokines. And so these are signaling molecules that are produced by muscle when we exercise. And they can have you know, multiple different effects on you know, inflammation throughout the body. And we do know that inflammation is very, very much associated with heart health, um, particularly things like atherosclerosis. Um, but what we looked at in, in our research, not, not the interventions that we're doing at the moment, is we did um, something called a Mendelian randomization study recently. Um, and for anybody who's not familiar, Mendelian randomization is basically a way of carrying out a, a very, very, very large scale um, RCT, but by using population data, when we have access to their genes and we know what those genes can do. So what we can do is we can look at different levels, people with different levels of muscle, and we can see what effect does that have on different, in our case, we wanted to have a look at lipoproteins. So things like cholesterol. Um, and specifically, we looked at LDL cholesterol, we looked at HDL cholesterol, and we looked at VLDL cholesterol. And, and we found that there wasn't any association between muscle and LDL cholesterol, but there was an association with the size of HDL and the size of VLDL. And potentially, what we think is that you know, larger muscle uh, and, and uh, actually muscle strength, because we looked at grip strength as well, um, tends to be associated with a, uh, a larger um, a HDL particle size and a smaller VLDL particle size, which again, now this is all quite speculative at the moment, but it's kind of giving us some ideas to work on for mechanisms. But it's, it's giving us an idea that, okay, these different particles, like for example, we know that larger HDL uh, may actually be associated with better what's called cholesterol efflux and the ability to retransfer um, cholesterol from uh, you know, the peripheral tissues to our body. So basically getting cholesterol out of our bloodstream. Um, and uh, VLDL, for some reason, we think that uh, smaller VLDL particles are actually associated with better metabolic health, or at least an indicator of better metabolic health. So that's one potential way that um, it can affect uh, heart health. Then there's other aspects of life. So for example, like we know that people who have larger muscle mass um, and stronger muscles tend to have better bone health, um, which is hugely important. So they have a lower risk of osteoporosis, and that's because muscles impact our bones. So every time our muscles move, they do create a small sensation stimulus for our bones, which causes regeneration of bones. And that's why, you know, some strength athletes tend to have exceptionally um, high bone density. Coupled with that, we know that stronger muscles um, uh, or stronger muscles are associated with a lower risk of falling. 
and why why might that be is because well when people get older you know we do know that people lose muscle we'll talk about that a little bit later hopefully um we do as people get older they tend to lose type 2 fibers and people will associate type 2 fibers with quick reactionary movements so if you've lost those two type 2 fibers as you get older and you you stumble or you fall or you slip those reactionary muscles that would normally restabilize us and stop us from hitting the ground are not there so we have a greater chance of hitting the ground you have a greater chance of hitting the ground and you've got osteoporosis from having low bones uh, sorry from from low muscle mass you've got a greater chance of fracturing something when you hit the ground and we see that people with lower levels of muscle mass have a higher fracture risk and we know that if somebody fractures something like their hip they've, they've got a much greater elevated risk of dying in the next six months so again, there's, a, there's another way. Um, there's aspects of uh, cognitive um, performance that seem to be enhanced by having larger levels of muscle. And then even back to the quality of life side of things, um, there are high levels of depression in people who have lower muscle mass. And while you know, I'm very skeptical about saying you know, it's directly related, I would say that if you have lower levels of muscle mass and you're more likely to be frail, you're less likely to be able to do things that you like doing or that you want to do. You're less likely to be able to be a, a productive member of society. You're less likely to be able to go out and go down to the pub and meet your friends because you might be, you know, stuck in a bed all the time. And that is not going to have a good effect on your, your mental health. So there, there are multiple different ways that um, our muscle mass can and strength can, can impact health in general. So I, I hope that has somehow yeah. answered uh, the question that you answered. Everything I was gonna, I was gonna, yeah, I was going to go on to. So that was a fantastic, nice, thorough job. Now, obviously, look, there's entire bodies of literature written on this stuff. You know, like if you're really interested in this, you can go down the rabbit hole and you can look at different signaling pathways and different little mechanisms and whatever else. Right. But exercise seems to be one of those, especially when we talk about like the actual adaptations to exercise. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, but you kind of can dissociate or yeah, pull apart the two things. Like the actual act of exercise seems to be pretty good, right? Seems to be pretty good for a variety of things, especially on the metabolic side, right? You could also say on the social side, like getting out, talking to some people, et cetera, right? The adaptations from exercise, they also seem to be beneficial, right? So we kind of have this interplay where just doing something, even if it's not that great, is probably a good thing, right? But if we can design a training program, design a you know lifestyle intervention, whatever, that actually leads to better outcomes in, certain, in terms of like increased strength, increased muscle mass, increased whatever, you know, or decreased in some cases, right? If we can design that, happy days, because the actual outcomes are also what we're looking for. However, it's one of those things where you can't really pull apart, pull it apart. Like you need to do the exercise to get the adaptations, you know? Um, but I, I, I always want to say that because, or make that known because people often get really inside their own head where they're like, oh, well, I don't know the exact perfect protocol for how to build muscle or the exact perfect protocol to increase my VO2 max or whatever it is. And it's like, okay, we'll just do something because that's, you know, that's associated with benefits in and of itself, right? So either way, you've, you've answered a lot of there or you've brought up a lot in terms of why exercise seems to be a panacea. And we obviously related it back to the strength and muscle side of things. Now, I personally have a bit of a gripe. And I said this to you before the uh, podcast, a lot of the research in sarcopenia seem to measure calf size, right? What the fuck is up with that? Are they just trying to troll me here? Because I have literally no calves whatsoever. I know a lot of the listeners of the podcast are in a similar position. Richie, I'm pretty sure you don't have massive calves yourself, you know? Uh, I take offense to that. Are you are you basing that on what you see in this? 
it's like literally it's my knees and then it's my ankles so. it's literally a bone <laughs> that's it you know um so what's the story there it seems that a lot of researchers are obsessed with measuring calf size as a proxy for overall muscle mass right first of all i have a question around that in terms of how do we like how do we actually decipher like what muscle like how are we measuring muscle mass and how are we relating that back to like health sarcopenia or whatever like what are you doing when you go in you're like right we want to look at the functional outcomes we want to look at the like the, the quantitative stuff i'm like how are you measuring muscle mass is it better to use like a dexa scanner whatever talk a little bit about that but then i have a second question and that is am i just doomed to die early because if they measure my calves and they compare it to the population right they're gonna go geez this guy's fucking severely under under muscled you know he's like you know we need to do so we need to intervene right now you know so am i just doomed to sarcopenia and dying early because my calves are tiny or is it a case of the more important thing is not looking at like comparing yourself to the population but rather comparing yourself to where you were your calves are small patty it's just not looking good for you right now um okay right you th there were a lot of questions in there you're gonna to have to guide me back as we go along so first off uh calves in 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 the research so i was saying this to you before we started um i have seen very little research that talks about calves i i like now in retrospect i i have i do recall some i'm going to kind of answer this with a question um why is bmi so commonly used as a metric for health these days because it's quick and easy because it's quick and easy and it is super quick and easy to take somebody's waist measurement super quick and easy to take somebody's height to take somebody's uh body weight it's really easy to get get a little tape measure throw it around somebody's calf and say there you go 12 inches or whatever a calf measurement oh, goes for uh, <laughs> um uh so and so like you said a lot of this research comes out of japan as well and and as i was saying to you earlier um, there's a huge amount of sarcopenia research coming out of Japan. And the reason for that is because they've got a massively aging population and they're like, okay, this is going to be a major, this is a major problem for us right now. We need to start looking into this. Um, but the thing with, with calves or focusing on any particular one muscle, it, it's, it's not particularly useful for comparing between individuals. So you can't say that like, you know, um, like, uh, like yourself with, you know, your, your three inch calves and like somebody else who's got like a 12 inch calf is one of these guys healthier than the other? You can't really say that. What I would say is information like that is possibly useful if we've got longitudinal data. So if we've got like somebody who takes a measurement in the year 2000, and then in the year 2022, they take another measurement and, or, you know, hopefully maybe every 10, 10 years, and we can say, okay, so this person has managed to actually maintain their calf size over those 20 years. And this person, we're seeing a considerable decline in uh, that calf size. And then we can also look at other factors that that person might be experiencing. So we might see that people who are losing that calf size, they've also got a greater risk of diabetes or heart disease or whatever number of conditions. So that's where it could be useful. But on its own, it's, it's not a particularly useful metric, okay? Um, uh, it's, it's useful for looking at big populations longitudinally. Um, and that's what I, I would say something similar about you know, BMI, it has its uses for within big populations. Um, but how do we actually do it in the lab? Uh, and there, there are a few ways of doing it. So at the moment, there is the kind of the standard definition for sarcopenia uh, is, uh, or for how to diagnose sarcopenia, it, there's different guidelines worldwide and there's nothing that's universally accepted. But the one that we mostly use here in Europe and often in the United States is 
from the European Working Group on Sarcopenia in Older People, which is an, a title that absolutely rolls out the tongue. Um, they've got a set of criteria and it's based on two things. So it's based on a measure of muscle function and that can be a, um, like a timed up and go test, for example, uh, or grip strength, which is what we like to use in, in our research and also on skeletal muscle mass um, uh, and particularly appendicular lean mass is what we, we, we like to look at. So in, in our research, um, what, what we do is we use two different machines for measuring muscle mass. We use a, a DEXA, which is often considered one of the gold standard machines. Um, I think personally MRI is, is, is better, um, but DEXA is quite good. Um, and then we also use a bioimpedance uh, analyst machine, uh, so B, BIA. Um, and that just uses electric currents. And to be honest, for looking at an individual, I think they're quite good as well. There may be discrepancies if you're, you're trying to compare people, but you know, uh, if we're looking at individuals, I think BIA is absolutely fine if you've got a good machine. And what we're looking at is we're looking for appendicular muscle mass. So we want to see the muscle that's actually on the, the appendices. So on the arms and on the legs. And the reason I like to look at that is, is because you can associate that muscle with levels of exercise and the effects of um, the outcomes of, let's like, say, uh, a resistance exercise trial. So for example, you, you, you hear people talking about like fat-free mass all the time. And fat-free mass is basically anything that's not fat in your body. And it can be at any part of your body. So it can be in, within your, your torso here. Um, and when you think about it, within our torso, we've got a huge amount of uh, organs as well. Organs can increase and decrease in size. Um, and they can actually increase and decrease in size in response to protein as well. But that's not muscle mass, but it often gets thrown in with it. So I, that's why I like to look at appendicular lean mass, the actual muscle that's on your appendices, because if you're doing a resistance exercise program, you are probably very specifically trying to increase those muscles. So the muscles in your legs, the muscles in your arms. Now, obviously, your posterior chain gets trained as well, but it's much harder to, quanti harder to quantify. So it's easier to say, okay, this guy's... Um, appendicular muscle mass has increased, you know, by two or three kilos over the last few months, this is a good outcome. Whereas if we've got fat-free mass changes, we might not see anything significant or we might see something significant and clinically it's not significant at all. So we do that and um, we use DEXA and we use the BIA to do it as well. And we use hand grip strength as our measure of strength. Now I have issues with hand grip strength because I don't think it is, I don't like, there, there are some good, there's good research that shows that hand grip strength or, and changes in hand grip strength are associated with, with better health outcomes. So if you've got stronger hand grip strength, you're probably going to live longer. That's fair enough. I think other measures like um, we can uh, use uh, machines that uh, actually measure the kind of force that somebody would exert if they were doing a deadlift. I think if we could do that a little bit more regularly, um, that might even be more useful. Um, but at the moment, hand grip, because it is very quick, very easy to do. It has become one of the gold standard strength tests. So that's what we're, we're using at the moment as well. Um, so that was one of the questions you asked. Oh, I have forgotten. I, I knew I would. I'll, I'll bring you back. Don't worry. But it just brings up a really important point. And this is something that if you're a researcher, especially, you need to be aware of. But if you are someone that is also just trying to interpret research, and this is the fact that oftentimes we're looking at proxy measures. We're not actually looking at what we want to look at. And this is important because like I bring up the calves, for example, because you'll see people online talking about longevity and they'll read research like this and they go, oh, this means that you have to do more calf work because you know having bigger calves is going to lead to better outcomes. And you can, you can start thinking about that. And then you can start making these kind of, you know, 
functional hypothesis about why this might be the case. You might be like, well, the calves are important because, you know, you do a lot of walking, the calves get worked in walking. So maybe if you're keeping more calf mass, it means it's, it's kind of a proxy for general activity. And you can also make these other inferences and go, well, you know, like contraction is kind of how you get lymph moving. So if you're contracting the lower limb, you're getting more lymphatic drainage, you're getting more lymph move around the body. So there's all these different things. Like you see people come up with the most crazy potential mechanism for why it is. And look, it might be, it might be the case, you know, um, same with hand grip strength. Like people are like, oh, hand grip strength. Like I need to train my grip so that, you know, I have improved hand grip strength. So that in my older age, like I'll, I'll, I'll live longer effectively. Right. And all of these, well, a lot of these markers are actually just proxy markers, right? They're not actually telling us what we want to know, but there's actually no way to tell us what we want to know. You're like, for example, if you're like, oh, I want to see the actual amount of muscle changed, the actual, actual amount of fat mass changed. There's no real way to know that unless we're able to autopsy you, you know? Like, and I don't think anyone's signing up for that, you know? <laughs> so like, we have to use proxy measures and then we have to try not to fall victim of glorifying that proxy measure because it's just a proxy measure. Like you said, like if you use a DEXA scan, you know, it's like, oh, cool. We're, we're measuring like lean mass or something like, or if you use any other thing, that's just, it's just telling you the lean mass. Like it's not really telling you a huge amount. And a lot of, uh, you know, research on like sports uh, and we'll call it sports nutrition, right? They fall victim of this where they'll do a, an intervention where they'll like restrict someone and like, like DEXA is a good one where they'll carbohydrate restrict someone and then do this like carbohydrate load. And all of a sudden their lean mass goes up by like three kilos. And they're like, look, see, but it's, it's, it's water weight. It's not telling you like you didn't actually gain three kilos of muscle, you know? And then you also see this in like, even like longevity research as well, where they'll like do like caloric restriction on a, a mouse or whatever. And then they'll feed it more and they'll be like look it gained like whatever this much or it lost this much lean mass or whatever and it's not actually looking at the organ mass that it lost or the organ mass that it gained back again you know it's like it's very hard to be perfect with your measurements with the tools that we have let's say let's say it that way and um, so i always encourage people not to get too caught up in the actual measurements that we're using they're just proxies a, a lot of the time at least and um, so we actually care about the the functional outcomes at the end of it like oh we saw an increase in muscle mass even with our poor tools for this and it seems to be correlated with better health okay cool let's see if we can refine our measurements let's see if we can refine like i would i would it would be fantastic. Well, maybe not for cows, but if there was another muscle group and it was like, all you have to do is train this one muscle group and that's going to lead to better longevity or like the grip strength. If it's like, oh, we just have to train our grip and we're going to live forever. Like I'm going to be fucking great. I have Vikings disease. So Vikings disease. So my grip is already like fucking five times better than everyone else's. So I'm going to live forever, apparently, you know? Um, so anyway, look, that's just one thing that I like to often uh, bring up that it's, don't get too caught up in the proxy measures. We're actually looking at the, the functional outcome. But anyway, to bring it back, right? To answer my question personally, am I doomed to die because of sarcopenia or to die of sarcopenia earlier because of my low calves? And I'm going to presume based on what you've told me, no. Probably not. <laughs> right, but anyway, you did your, your grand look uh, what like and here's the thing like you, you you go in you train uh regularly i i know you like to hit the biceps and stuff like that um the fact that you know your your calves are not matching up to the rest of the physique really doesn't matter 
because you're fit, you're healthy in other ways and other aspects. Like focusing on one muscle is it's just the silliest thing in the world. It, it, unless you're a bodybuilder, because then unless yeah, unless you're a bodybuilder, but like you know, yeah, it's a low low percentage of the individuals. But anyway, this does bring me to my next kind of question, right? Um, and this is a, this is a bit of a, a thought experiment, right, or a case study, I suppose you could say, right? And this is, would you rather have someone that is undermuscled, right? So whatever proxy measure we're using, whether it's BMI, whether it's DEXA scan, whether it's we measured their body fat, BIA, whatever, right? But we've got a measure that's like, this person is a little bit undermuscled for what we would like to see in our, you know, our little charts, right? But they're really strong, right? Relatively speaking, they're really strong for themselves. You know, they're, they're strong. Any me measure, they're a strong individual, right? Would you rather that or would you rather someone that is really well muscled, right? So they are like top in the charts, like they have, the, they have a whatever uh, fat-free mass index of like 25 or whatever, like the natural limit is supposedly supposed to be, whatever. They're literally top in the charts. They're really well muscled, but they're kind of a bit weak, you know, like they're, they're just not very strong. Like if you were to like, even just compare like a squat or something, like they're just very middle of the pack, not like nothing to write home about. Right. Now, obviously the two individuals are training, right. They wouldn't have got these outcomes. Otherwise let's assume they're still, they're training relatively similarly, but the outcomes that they get from the similar programs are vastly different, which in your opinion, at least, or at least your uh, science-informed uh, opinion, is a more important or a more, I don't know what you would say, a healthier, maybe, <laughs> individual. Which would you rather be? Uh, I'd rather be the genetic freak that has both, um, you know, the, the higher muscle mass and strength, but then wouldn't everyone? Um, I, th I think, like, to genuinely answer the question, I think you'll realistically see that you, know, you, you do realistically see that there are stronger correlations between muscle function, so muscle, muscle strength and health outcomes, longevity, than there are necessarily with muscle mass. And, and there are a few reasons for that. So we do know that like, people can have similar sized muscle or, um, as measured by a DEXA, but they can have different levels of, of strength and different health um, states and the reason for that is because of the structure of the muscle. So for example, when I talk about what is a healthy muscle, we're talking about, I don't know if, you, if you've ever seen a, an MRI cross-section of a thigh muscle or something like that, you'll see what, you know, the, the muscle area is always nice and dark black color. You'll have a little layer of like subcutaneous white fat around it. And that's pretty much it. Uh, you'll see the bone in the middle, okay? That is a good healthy muscle because we are seeing that solid muscle mass. There's no infiltration of fat within that muscle. We do know that in, in individuals who um, have poor metabolic health, so for example, people with type 2 diabetes are a very, very good example, we see something called intramuscular fat infiltration. So that's muscle that develops within the tissues of, uh, within the muscular tissue. So if you look at a cross-section of their muscle, it's not one solid black mass. You will see little basically kind of rivulets of fat that are going throughout the muscle. And what that does is that actually impairs muscle function significantly. A muscle like that can't contract as 
powerfully as a muscle that uh, doesn't have that level of fat infiltration. And there's, there, there's also, you know, again, back to the chicken and the egg scenario of, you know, is, is it the effect of the exercise or is it the, the effect of just the muscle size? Exercising regularly is going to reduce the risk of having that fat infiltration, um, but it's also going to make you stronger. So I think it's just a good indication of all around health when somebody has a strong muscle, whether it's a large or not, if it is strong, it is more than likely quite healthy. And it, it, it's an indication of somebody who's been training regularly. So yeah, to kind of to answer the question, I think strength is probably a better indicator than muscle size of, of health. Fantastic. And when I always describe the uh, like intramuscular fat, I always describe it as like, you go in and get a steak and you ask for a steak that's like really well marbled. You're like, okay, you see it, you see literally fat in the whole like muscle bit. It's not exactly the same, but that's basically intramuscular fat there, right? Have, have you ever had a Wagyu? I, I haven't, but I, I heard it's quite delicious. So um, I, I used to live in Japan and where I lived in Japan, a place called Miyazaki, it, it was actually famous for producing some of the best Wagyu in Japan. Um, and I remember distinctly the first time I walked into a supermarket and like, you know, here in our, like I say here in Ireland, I'm in England at the moment. Um, in England, so like we're... we're... <laughs> No, we've been excommunicated already. Um, but like you go into a supermarket and you go to the steak section and you'll see like a nice steak that you or I would normally go for. It's probably not going to be hugely marbled. Okay. But you're going to see a big red section. That's the muscle mass with a cap of fat over it. Okay. Normal. If you get something like a ribeye, you'll see little lines of fat going throughout it, but it's still going to be mostly red with that line of white fat going through when I was in Japan and I saw Wagyu for the first time in my life, I had no idea what I was looking at because one, it's not red. It is the lightest pink color with, it, it is predominantly fat. You just see this mesh, this net of white fat with these tiny little pink areas in between. And it is, it's phenomenal. It is delicious. It melts in your mouth. Like I, I can't describe how good it is. But those animals are not healthy because they are being overfed. Like that's like the foie gras um, of, of muscle meat. Those animals are being overfed phenomenal amounts of like um, rice and other grains to be put into a state that, that they don't get a huge amount of exercise. They apparently get massages. That's, that's BS because I've, I've, I've seen where they're raised. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not particularly healthy animals. Um, and I would not like my muscles to be mm. like that. I would like to, my muscles you know, to be nice and dense and relatively free of intramuscular fat if possible 100 also i'd like my muscles to be really really red as well and that's purely by virtue of having lots of mitochondria and lots of good vascularization and blood flow to them that's my personal preference anyway it's going to be the next flex you know that I like so look at how red my muscles are. <laughs> um but anyway so long story short you're saying that the more important thing is to be strong versus being big however you can't really separate the two. And ideally, why not both? <laughs> ideally, why not both? And, and remember, there's a massive genetic component to it as well. One thing that I didn't get to say about you know, when we were talking about like that appendicular lean mass, I, I forgot to mention, and I should really mention it, it's not appendicular lean mass on its own. It's appendicular lean mass index. So it's that, uh, so we all know that body mass index is your, your um, what is it, uh, weight over height squared. So that's the same thing. It's your appendicular lean mass, your muscle mass over your height squared in relation to your height. Because for example, you could find somebody who has, who's got, you know, they're five foot tall and they've got, let's say uh, their, their right arm has three kilos of muscle 
And you could find somebody who's six foot tall and their right arm has 3.2 kilos of muscle. So you can say, oh yeah, their appendicular lean mass is, is higher, but they're also a foot taller. So they've actually got a lot less lean mass in relation to their height. So, so that's another aspect that's really, really important. You can't just take the, these, these raw numbers and say, okay, this number is better. You need to compare it to something else as well. Yeah, 100%. And this is also why if you're taller, it visually is harder to look like you have more muscle. At least that's my excuse anyway. Um, I'm just absolutely jacked out of my mind, but because I'm six foot five, you know, it's I'm just... <laughs> It's fucked. I just look skinny always. Um, but anyway, <laughs> that's a side tangent. The next thing that I want to kind of go on to is, and this is this is something that it's kind of it's, it's really hard to parse out. So I'm going to give you some time. Right. <laughs> Why do we lose muscle when we get old? Is this just a foregone conclusion? Is this just a function like we're all me, you, everyone who's ever born, everyone who will ever be born? We're just going to reach a certain age and muscle is just going to start falling off our body, right? It's just going to start deteriorating, right? Like we all know we're going to have to die, right? Well, there's a non-zero probability that I'm Be not going to die. Yeah, this is a universe. It's again, probability, I potentially am going to live forever. But anyway, that's a side tangent. Um, most of us, you know, I'm just built different. Uh, most of us are going to lose muscle as we get older, right? Is that just a foregone conclusion? Or is there a way to potentially stave it off? And even if we do all the stuff to like, we do everything right, we're doing our resistance exercise, eating enough protein, et cetera. Um, are we still going to just, you know, slowly, slowly, you know, fall off a cliff <laughs> or what's the story there? Basically. We're all doomed. Um, we, we are all doomed. Okay. So my, my area of research like I said, it's muscle and, and heart health. A uh, big aspect of that is something called sarcopenia. And sarcopenia is the progressive loss of muscle mass as we get older. Um, and just to kind of get, give people an idea of what this even means, as I say to it, like, it, you know, if, if you're in your 30s right now, you know, think back to when you were a child and think of maybe a, a grandparent or somebody who was older uh, than you. And then think of them as you got older yourself, more than likely, they probably got a little bit smaller, a little bit more frail, a little bit decrepit. And that's kind of an example of that loss of muscle that we see over time. They're losing muscle mass, they're losing mass, they're losing strength. Um, and it happens to a lot of people. And it, 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 it's only recently been kind of accepted as you know, a proper diagnosable condition. I think it was as, as, as recently as 2017 when that, that happened. Um, and why does that happen? And, you know, we'll kind of get onto, is it inevitable? So there are a few different reasons for it. And I will say that the main reason, um, or the, at least the principal reason that people start losing muscle is because of inactivity as they get older. So as you get older, it is almost expected for you to start doing less. It's like, you know, you've, you've worked hard for the last, uh, you know, 50 years of your life, you can start taking it a little bit easy now. Um, and I think that's terrible advice um because you often we often actually make it harder for older people to maintain muscle mass like you know you'll always do stuff like oh I'll carry those bags in uh, those groceries in uh, for my granny there because you know i'm a, I'm a good grandson I, I just do that for you but it's like you kind of actually want to let her struggle <laughs> because that's what's actually keeping her muscle mass you know there's a nicer way of saying that uh <laughs> yeah you, you you want granny to to get her daily dose of exercise um absolutely no so, so when we get older, we stop, we stop being active and that activity, the exercise 
is the actual stimulus that we need to maintain muscle. Because muscle is not going to hang around for, you know, just, just like, you know, ah, he looks good with a little bit of extra muscle on his body. Muscle is only going to be there if you give it a reason to be there. And that reason is exercise and movement. And as people get older, they, you know, they walk less, step counts drop. Um, they do less heavy lifting uh, because they're not expected to. And they get weaker over time. And that doesn't necessarily need to be the case. So I, I genuinely think exercise is the main or lack of exercise, is the main contributor to loss of muscle. Another thing is that as people get older um, is they tend to suffer from more conditions that will put them into hospital for a short or have more hospital stays. And what we have in that case then is something called um, a catabolic crisis. So when somebody goes into hospital, they're usually in bed and they could be in bed, let's say for a week. And if they're in bed, they're not doing any activity at all. And we know that even short bouts of immobility like that or bed rest can cause massive drops in muscle protein synthesis, massive drops in insulin uh, sensitivity, and very, very sudden drops in muscle mass. And you know, some people will say that when an older person loses that amount of muscle mass so quickly, they don't necessarily regain it all back as soon as they get out of hospital. So that catabolic crisis is that moment that they're in hospital for a week and then they don't regain all of their muscle back and then they kind of gradually lose a little bit over more over time and they, they go into hospital again for whatever happens to them because old people tend to go a little bit more regularly. Um, and people, I've, I've heard this and this is purely anecdotal, but like you'll hear they were never right after they went to hospital that time. And, and you hear it so much because somebody will get, you know, knocked down, at, not knocked down, not literally, but they will get knocked back. They'll be... Um, in hospital for a while, they'll have lost a huge amount of muscle and they won't be able to continue with their life as they did previously. And they never get back to those levels of strength or muscle mass that they had before. So it's a genuine risk. Um, so yeah, older people tend to lose because of lack of activity, but there are uh, other reasons for that as well. And as people get older, we have the development of something that's known as anabolic resistance. And anabolic resistance is basically a resistance to the normal stimuli that we have for muscle growth and muscle maintenance. And those two main stimuli are exercise that we just mentioned, activity and protein intake. So we know that protein can stimulate muscle protein synthesis as well, um, especially after exercise. And, and what we see is that in older people, um, if we want to stimulate muscle growth um, and to measure how we do that, we, we measure something called muscle protein synthesis. If you give an older person 20 grams of whey protein, that older person will have, actually let, let's start a different way. If you give a young person 20 grams of whey protein, you will very close to maximally stimulate their muscle protein synthesis. It gets to a really, really high level. If you give that same dose to an older person, when I say older, somebody in their seventies, you might get half that level of muscle protein synthesis. Now you can rescue that by giving them more protein. So if you give them like, if you double their protein intake to 40, it can actually get quite close to the, the younger person's level of muscle protein synthesis. So that's an aspect of anabolic resistance is people just don't react as well to protein, but they also don't react as well to exercise. Um, so older people may need more intense doses of exercise to get the same effects that a younger person would get. So it, it is actually quite difficult for older people to build muscle, but we also see that anabolic resistance itself seems to be less in people who maintain exercise throughout their lives. So people who have been exercising from their, their youth all throughout you know, their life up to you know, um, old age, they 
don't suffer as much anabolic resistance. So they're, they're able to build muscle or at least maintain muscle with less effort than somebody who has never done any form of activity in their life. And, you know, they're probably able to get away with eating slightly less protein than somebody who's never done any exercise over their life. And this, again, goes back to just saying how important activity is as we get older. Like, not only does it help us maintain muscle mass, but it also makes it easier for us to maintain muscle mass as we get older as well. Um, but then on, on top of anabolic resistance and probably within that umbrella term, we've got you know, increased insulin resistance as people get older. Uh, and that can, again, be down to lower levels of activity, higher levels of fat accumulation within the muscles, which actually reduces our, our, our ability to process insulin. Um, and then increases in things like, um, I mentioned anti-inflammatory cytokines earlier. So increases in pro-inflammatory cytokines, so which have the opposite effect and actually increase levels of inflammation. They can increase the catabolic or breakdown process, and that can increase levels of uh, muscle breakdown as we get older as well. Um, uh, lower levels of sleep because older people tend to have um, a, a reduced sleep as they get older. And we know sleep is incredibly important for helping to maintain muscle, um, helping to build muscle, helping to keep things like cortisol levels low. And we know that excessive cortisol on a chronic basis can reduce our muscle mass. Um, what else uh, can, can get in there as well? Um, oh yeah, appetite as well. We know older people, they tend to have lower, some of them have lower appetites. And that means that they're eating less protein. They're not able to stimulate muscle growth as much as possible. Um, so all of these things can contribute to that loss of muscle. And, and one thing that um, I, I, I've mentioned in, in, in seminars I've done before, and like I, I've kind of done a, a diagram for, of it for my, my PhD as well, is something that I call the, the sarcopenic cycle. So what you have is you'll have these older people who will lose a little bit of muscle mass. And when you lose that little bit of muscle mass and strength, you moving is not as easy anymore, okay? Because like, if you think if your body weight stays the same and you lose a little bit of strength, you know, it's not as easy to go out. It's not as easy to climb up the stairs. So you're probably going to do a little bit less of activity. So your activity level drops. Your activity level drops. Um, you may gain a little bit of body weight, okay? If you gain a little bit of body weight, um, you know, if you're gaining body weight in the form of fat, that makes things even harder again because you've got reduced muscle mass and you've got this increased level of fat, which is going to make moving even harder. So you're going to reduce your activity levels even more, which is going to lead to more reductions in body weight, or sorry, in muscle mass and more reductions in strength. And you've got this horrible, vicious cycle where you're just getting weaker and you're not moving as much, but you need to be moving more to, to stay or stop yourself from getting weaker. And it's like, it's the sarcopenic obese cycle really, but um, people get into that and it just continues. And this is why we see this sudden increase in our sorry decrease in muscle mass in the population from you know the age 55 onwards is people start to fall into that sarcopenic or sarcopenic obese cycle and it just snowballs um and it's yeah we, we need to talk about like you know what people can do about it but like you know at the end of the day it's just like keep moving really yeah and this this i have a question in this and it's actually i don't really want to ask it purely because i actually don't want to know the answer uh but for our loyal followers, listeners of the podcast, of course, I'm going to ask it. It's basically, if we're, if we're exercising, right, let's just say that me, for example, right, I exercise, well, maybe I'm a bad example, because I do a sport as well. But let's just assume just resistance training and some cardiovascular training five times a week, right? If I maintain that for the rest of my life, 
you're saying here that there's not maybe anyway look we, we can't speak in absolutes here but i'm probably going to see less of an issue with this steeper drop off you know there's obviously going to be some drop off I'm, I'm not expecting to be as strong as i am at 30 as i am at 65 or whatever right but you know we're, we're still doing well right i'm still training away etc right so if i continue to exercise that's clearly a better position to be in right okay there's no no con no controversy around that but what happens to the person that has never exercised right what happens if you just you know you've been working away you've had a really busy job you start exercising at 65 have they already lost years of their life right now i never want to like discourage people from exercising i think exercising just in and of itself is a benefit like just get out move do whatever but has there been uh let's call it too much insult by virtue of not exercising right for those whatever 65 years like you're like oh i just retired whatever the retirement age is like 67 or whatever so you just retired and you're like, right, I'm actually, I, I really wanted to do this the last while. I'm going to get into some exercise. I'm going to do some work, right? Have we got to a stage, and maybe you might talk about the anabolic resistance thing, like why, like what, what's actually causing that? Because this is, this is one of the things I have a bit of a question around. I'm like, is it some sort of like, you know, DNA methylation where it's like, you know, the epigenetic signals or the things that have led to the epigenetic signature that you have, you've been putting in the quote unquote wrong inputs. And now they've created a, we'll call it a, an epigenetic signature that is less conducive to building muscle, building strength, building cardiovascular fitness, whatever. Right. So have you fucked it from not training, not doing all these healthy habits for the 65 years, or is there just a case of, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, accumulated cell damage. Let's just put it like that. Like there's misfolded proteins, which is, you know, it's kind of coming from a genetic signal, but anyway, like there's, there's proteins aggregated, your cells don't work as well. You know, you have less mitochondria because obviously you haven't been exercising. You have all these different things at a purely cellular level that just make it harder to effectively turn on the protein synthetic machinery. Right. So basically what I'm asking is for those of our listeners that, you know, are potentially delaying exercise or delaying getting physically fitter physically stronger physically more muscular whatever are they taking years off their life or are are is it a case of look maybe but you know the only answer we have is to get out and move anyway jesus you ask long questions you know <laughs> um right okay look i, I think I, i'm going to preface this with the good old prevention is better than cure yeah. okay um it, it is like we don't have enough research on like individuals who have not exercised throughout their life and then hit their 60s and decided to become lifelong exercisers from there on we don't have enough research or enough data that we can give any you know you know concrete advice based on that but we can say that those who do exercise throughout their lives they're going to be healthier it, it, it's simple as that but it's it's not like i'm not saying at all that you know if you've managed to avoid exercise up until your 60s you're fucked i'm not saying that at all um i know for a fact from the research that i do with my populations um that we can get 
benefits, at least in the proxies of muscle mass and strength. And if we're getting benefits there in muscle mass and strength, we're going to get some other benefits further down the line, be it like with insulin sensitivity. And then hopefully, you know, depending on how my research turns out, like with, with other cardiometabolic markers as well. But there is a time component to, uh, to health. And there's a time component to, I, I think you might've said, uh, cardiometabolic assaults. Okay. Um, so for example, we do know like that if, if your cholesterol is elevated for years and years and years, you know, that is going to have a major effect on your health and it is potentially going to take years and years and years to undo that damage. Um, and you know, it's sometimes it's not even possible even with statins or something like that. Same goes for the kind of damage that would be done from assaults on poor gl blood glucose control. Um, you know, if somebody's not looking after themselves and they've been living with diabetes for years, their, their body is going to be kind of the worst for wear because of that, but it can still improve after it. But, you know, do, do you, do you want to like redo a car that has been through the wars or just drive that car really, really safely around the wars and avoid like the really shitty road, the shitty roads. So it doesn't have to go into repair, you know, at the end and cost you a, you know, an arm and a leg to fix you want to look after it as, as you know, you're, you're growing up with the car. You want, you don't want to damage it actively. So yeah, that's why exercise is important, but kind of onto like what you mentioned about like, you know, epigenetic changes. I, I think epigenetics and exercise, it's going to be an absolutely fascinating area. I really think it is like, we, we do know that, you know, uh, exercise does cause some epigenetic changes in certain genes. And I think, it's going to be something that we'll have to research. It's not being looked into hugely at the moment, like as in do, what's the effect that it has on um, anabolic resistance? Um, and is it because of epigenetics? Like it, purely speculatively, I would say it absolutely could. And that would be something that we, we should look into more. Um, uh, is it because you know, you're exercising more, you're keeping certain genes more active that help maintaining muscle mass, make it a little bit easier? Like I, I can't wait to see more research on that, but I can't give any conclusive answers now, unfortunately, because you just don't know. Yeah, um, unfortunately. Yeah, because I tend to think of it in terms of the same way you think of like LDL, you're like, okay, lower for longer seems to be better for health, okay? So with muscle mass, strength, and all that kind of stuff, I'm, I kind of think of it as more for longer is probably going to be better for health, you know? However, I don't have like... I often worry for myself from like a whatever purely selfish thing. I'm like, am I just going to hit the 75? Because it seems to be 75 is the age that people like consistently start hitting that kind of functional decline. You know, would you agree with that? For some people, it can be even earlier. But like, yeah, I, I think after their 70s, you see people like, you know, people having a massive increase in what would be defined as frailty, although frailty doesn't have a proper deficient, uh, definition at the moment. Um, mm. But yeah um yeah absolutely and one thing i just want to touch on just because i, I thought of it there as you mentioned that with, with with muscle size i know we're, we're spending this this conversation talking about yeah bigger muscles better none of this research into the health outcomes of muscle mass none of this is done in bodybuilders yeah. or powerlifters so we're not saying that you need to be absolutely jacked like arnold schwarzenegger levels to to be getting these health benefits we're talking within a normal population, just having slightly above average levels of muscle. And again, there was another study, and I, for the love of God, I can't think of um, the names of the authors, but they, they, they looked at muscle mass in relation to uh, longevity and, and health outcomes. And obviously there was a point where the benefits of added muscle plateaus, 
and like you don't really get any more additional benefit above a certain point now uh, again I, I don't have that paper with me so I can't say at what point it happens um, but it's like, it's like similarly with with you know if you look at body fat levels you've got a nice actually a, a u-curve if you have incredibly low body fat levels you know your risk of death increases incredibly just as much as if you have very very high levels of body fat there's a nice little sweet spot in between with muscle mass it's it, it's not a u-curve it is like the more muscle you have up to a point you're getting healthier and then like you know you don't need to really try and get much bigger muscles after this it's it's just um decreasing returns after that yeah and we actually talked about that in the last episode of the podcast not exactly the the outcomes that you're talking about but in terms of like the hours you spend per week exercising like it seems to be a case of okay if you hit the the bare minimums like the the guidelines there we'll take them as the bare minimums that's why they're the guidelines <laughs> you know so it's like you do those if you like double them I, can't, I don't have the figures in front of me but it's like basically if you double them you still continue to see benefits but once you start getting beyond that it's like okay you get marginal benefits you know you're still getting a little bit of extra but as you like quadruple like septuple or whatever it is them it's like you're you're just you're probably going to get you're going to fall off a cliff where you're just more likely to get injured you're more likely to run into all these other issues so it's not a case of oh i'll just do more and more exercise you know and it's the same with muscle mass and whatever it's like yeah there probably is additive benefit like let's just assume like if you're someone that is still within the again we'll call it the, the natty range like you're still natural you're not taking any exogenous hormones whatever right but you have absolutely maximized your muscle mass let's just say assume you did it in a healthy way you're not just like doing whatever crazy fucking interventions whatever you did it over the last 15 years you just consistently stayed good diet good health etc right and you've absolutely maximized it like there probably are additive benefits than someone that's just like okay i've got the the, the bare minimum muscle or the quote-unquote normal level of muscle right but obviously as you get closer and closer to maximizing this, you're probably getting less and less of a return on investment. You know, like it's the same with learning a language. Like you get to like 80, 90% quote unquote fluent. Uh, you're pretty good to go. Like, and then you stop, you stop caring. And it's like, ah, I don't need to work on the accent that much. Or, you yeah, know, nah, who that, needs yeah. to conjugate that verb? You know, exactly. Like, and people even do this with their like native tongue. Like there's definitely words in English that I'm like, I, I don't know what that is. Like, you have to look that up, you know? So it's like, you're, no one is actually ever 100% fluent. Like no one can pick up the dictionary and go, I know every single word in this, <laughs> you know? And it's the same with like muscle mass and all these outcomes. It's like, okay, this closer and closer we get to this like limit, like this physiological limit, like you're probably getting less of a return on investment. And probably speaking, like, or in reality, I mean, like to do the things that you need to do to get closer and closer to that, it's probably just not worth it in your real life. Like if you have to train like two, three hours a day just to get closer to inch off that little extra, you know, cubic centimeter of muscle, it's like you've just given up like three hours of your day and you could have got or maintained that muscle with just 45 minutes of work. You know, it's like there's a there's a functional drop off in terms of the return on investment, you know? Absolutely. Uh, but but with that as well, um like and it's just because of the society that we live in most people have not i want to say this in a nice way less than optimal lifestyles okay they have poor diets and they have very very poor exercise habits if they have any exercise habits at all so 
if you go to, let's say, the average Joe on the street who doesn't really do any exercise, and, and that is the average Joe, the average person does not do any exercise, and um, you suddenly get them into the gym one day a week, that is benefiting their health. Um, to be honest, like you could have people, you know, as long as they're staying active every day, you could have them in the gym twice a week, and I'd be relatively health, uh, happy with the, the strength and muscle mass benefits they would get from that. Now, can you do a little bit more and get more benefit? Yeah, probably. Can you get to a point where, you know, it's just pointless doing anymore because, you know, the benefits are, it's just, again, diminishing returns. Of course, absolutely. Find what you enjoy. Like, you know, if, if I get to a point where like, like at the moment, like, let's say, I, I think I, I'm lucky if I get into the gym four days a week at the moment. Um, if that gets boring or I don't like it anymore, then I'm, I'm going to do less. Um, and if it gets to a point where it's like, oh yeah, you know, I'd like to do an extra day. I, I, I'll do that because it, it's fine for me. I, I use the gym to de-stress. But if, if for somebody, they go into the gym and it's like, yeah, three days a week is, is really my max. Any more than that, and I'd start resenting the gym, that's fine. You're, you're at this sweet spot there. Go with that. Don't worry about getting huge. And like, you don't even need to get like a, a natty bodybuilder level. Like genuinely just have more muscle than the average in the population and you're doing fairly well. Yeah, hundred percent. And like, like you said, like most people, they're under muscled and over fat, right? And that's obviously a direct outcome of the lifestyles they lead. Now, again, some of that is just outside of their control. It's just, you know, they, you know, we have to do what we have to do sometimes, you know, it's like, if you live in a, a poor area and you've no access to gyms, you've no access for good food, whatever, it's like your outcomes versus someone else's outcomes are going to be different. But either way, when we're talking in this more, uh, theoretical framework ideally i would yeah i would just like to see people with more muscle you know i think everyone's health would improve like we always do this thing where we talk about the like obesity crisis i'm like why don't we talk about the under muscle crisis you know (laughs) i'm like if everyone i don't care you might disagree with this but i'm like if everyone just stayed the exact same body fat i don't care what body fat you are 30 percent body fat 12 percent 40 percent 50 i don't care right and everyone increased their muscle mass i i do not see how we would not improve people's health. You know, I'm like, that would, in my mind, at least purely by virtue of the fact that you have to exercise to do that. And then I think muscle is very like cardioprotective, metabolic health improves. Like there's so many, as we've, we've talked about, you know, there's so many benefits to this. I'm like, if everyone was just more active and built more muscle, like health would be in a much better position. I don't know if you agree with that or not. I, I don't think you're going to find many people who are going to object with the idea that if everybody exercised a little bit more, they'd be doing better. Yeah, they, they probably would. Which kind of brings me to our, uh, we'll call it our next and final question, unless you have anything else to, to add to the discussion. And this is, uh, what are you personally doing right now? You obviously mentioned there where you're like, oh, I'm just, I'm training like, you know, three times a week, you know, maybe if I can get four in happy days, but like, whatever, you know, three to four times per week, you're good to go with your presumably resistance training, right? But what are you doing training-wise, nutrition-wise, lifestyle-wise, right? And I want you to just think about what you're doing now. Now, obviously, look, you're a busy person. You're a busy man. It's not like you're, we're talking ideals here, right? But you're busy. You're doing all this stuff. Contrast what you're doing now and then what you think, like projecting that into the future. Let's assume like you still enjoy the process, et cetera, right? What's is there anything in your mind that you're like, oh yeah, I'm actually, I'm definitely, when I'm getting older, I'm going to change, I'm going to start doing a bit more of this, or, you know, I'm going to drop out this, or maybe even on the diet front, are you going to go, okay, well, as soon as I start getting a bit older, I'm actually just going to increase my protein or like, 
what what's your thought process contrasting now so first of all what are you doing now and then contrasting that with what do you plan on doing in the future now obviously life gets in the way etc cetera, etc cetera, but this is a, a theoretical timeline uh, good opportunity to speculate um so what do we do now uh, at the moment uh like i said about four days a week five if it's uh, if i don't have a huge lot, amount of other things to do um into the gym for about an hour a little bit more and i do i like to do full body uh movements as much as possible uh routines as much as possible just because i i like to get multiple opportunities to stimulate muscle growth slash maintenance um, now I'm not actively aiming for muscle growth right now because I'm just trying not to get too fat um, because I spend a lot of time in front of a desk at the moment um, and not a huge amount of time doing um, physical activity outside of the gym or outside of you know my work. Uh, so um, into the gym, uh, I focus on a lot of uh, compound movements um, and then I'll throw in a few uh, a few isolation movements as well. I do like to try and focus on some strength movements. So I will, like I'll do squats. Um, I won't, and I'll kind of go through cycles of sometimes where I'll be focused on more hypertrophy stuff and stuff where I'll be focused more on strength work, because I do think like just focusing on strength work is not specific in, in, let's say in the context of powerlifting, it's not important for health to be able to squat, you know, 200 kilos, but I enjoy trying to you know aim for something more like you know I, oh, I want to increase my bench press i want to increase my squat i want to increase my deadlift it's a fun activity it's fun to aim for for a while until i get sick of it and i realize oh i'm weak i'm never going to be like the big boys um and then you i just know the weights to... are getting heavy and they're like fuck this is actually just sore <laughs> yeah yeah it's like oh my my joints are falling apart right now you know um so that's what i do and i, and I like to tr i like to change it up regularly um I, well when i say regularly every six months i like to try a new routine or something like that just because um, I think you need to stick with the routine for long enough to see some of the effects of it. Um, but it's also nice to add in some novelty to your training as well, just from a psychological perspective, uh, as I get older, what am I going to do? Um, do you know what I want to do more of now is, uh, I want to do some more aerobic work specifically to improve my aerobic capacity. Uh, I'm going to see if I can get a VO2, uh, max test here done, done in, um, LJMU, uh, just to see what my current level is, which is going to be pretty much abysmal um, because I do, the only cardio I do is very, very steady state. So cycling to work um, and cycling to see some of my participants in, in different parts of Liverpool at the moment. Um, and I want to kind of get back into a bit of running just because I think, I think human beings, um, we have adapted to an upright gait. And I think, you know, we're, we're adapted to running and I think it's something I would like to be better at. Um, and, you know, if it ever, ever comes to it, it would be nice to be able to uh, escape if I ever need to escape quite quickly uh, from a bad situation. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to, to run a little bit more. And it also it gets me outside more, which I don't do enough of at the moment. So that's what I would like to do. You're, you're um, up north of England. So uh, rainy, it's coming into winter. Oh, man, may as well be back home, like, to be honest, um, in, in Ireland. But, yeah, it, the weather is getting crap at the moment. Um, and then in terms of protein, um, yeah, I may increase my protein intake as I get older. Um, so like I'm already, you know, like I'm, people will know me as a, a researcher who spends a huge amount of time talking about protein. And obviously I have a fairly high protein intake, but it is nowhere near as high as some people might assume. Um, I don't think protein needs to be, ex, you know, ridiculously high, uh, but I may increase it as I get older, if I notice any de decreases in muscle mass. And then there's also like the consideration uh, as somebody gets older, uh, should I get some assistance with this? And this is something that I genuinely not put a huge amount of thought into, 
but I have in the back of my mind, my mind is open to the thought, would I ever need to get um, like testosterone replacement therapy as I get older? I don't know. I'm like, I'm not the kind of person who would say, oh, steroids, never do that ever. Like, you know, for, for let's say for athletes, physique athletes, if somebody wants to take steroids and if they want to get huge, that's absolutely fine. I have no problem with that as long as they're absolutely open and transparent about it. And, you know, they're not hiding it or they're not saying that, no, no, I'm not taking it at all, which I think is even, even worse than hiding it. Um, but if somebody gets older, we do know that some, um, a lot of anabolic steroids were originally designed for uh, medical purposes for people who were, you know, spending huge amounts of time in bed and were losing a lot of muscle mass. Um, and there may be some cases for older people where, you know, some sort of assistance, um, be with testosterone or, or other substances, whatever we may have in a few years time, it, it, it may be warranted. Um, now it, it's not the kind of thing I would say, yeah, everybody should be doing that. Absolutely not. You know, like that's a massive decision to go on to TRT. Um, and it's actually something I want to talk about, um, in, in future podcasts with, with some other people as well as just, I want, I want to know more about it. Um, because obviously a lot of my clients are older individuals and they want to know what they should be taking. I don't think anybody need, like, I think people can get huge amounts of benefits from just eating well and, uh, exercising and, and that will give huge benefits, but you know, um, there, there may be situations where people could benefit from, from uh, some sort of assistance. I don't know enough about it to, to give a huge commentary on it, but I, I just, I like to be open to all potential kind of therapeutic aspects or therapies that are out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I suppose like that it's an umbrella term of like, right. You're saying TRT because that's obviously what we would think of now, but who knows in 20 years time, 30 years time, what fucking exogenous molecules, the, pharmacists or pharmacologists i should say have cooked up and they're like you know what actually this one is going to give you these effects whatever you know so like yourself i'd be fairly open to that as i age but there is also this little uh niggling thought in my mind where i always think i'm like is this a case like say we often see like that uh functional decline in testosterone as men age you know but it also kind of is the same question we were just asking about the muscle mass stuff where it's like is this just a, a foregone conclusion or is it a case of lifestyle changes inactivity people don't like you know maybe get their enough vitamin d because they're not going out into the sun they're like they're not doing all of these different things is it's like is it a foregone conclusion that you're going to be on lower or you're going to have lower testosterone or is it a case of you just do all of the inputs that you know you should be doing and as a result, your testosterone is in a fantastic place, you know? So it's one of those things where I'm like, chicken or egg, what's the story? <laughs> well, well, there was a great um, review paper that was released, I'm going to say early this year or late last year. Um, I actually, I did a video on it for, for my protein um, and they were talking about um, lifestyle modifications that one can do to increase testosterone, okay? And they were talking about things like, um, not having an overly low fat diet or calorie restricted diet, uh, doing resistance exercise, getting a wide variety of different, uh, minerals into your diet. And at the end of the video, I just literally said two things. If you are living a healthy lifestyle, you already have all of these factors covered. I, getting enough sleep was another one. And you should, these should be the cornerstones of your lifestyle. If you're trying to live a healthy diet. You should be exercising. You should be doing resistance exercise. You should be sleeping well. You should be getting a wide and varied diet, not deficient in any particular nutrients. 
that will ensure that your testosterone levels are healthy. But that is only going to give you testosterone levels within a normal physiological range, which is not going to give you the benefits of the super physiological doses that somebody is going to be taking if they're taking exogenous testosterone. So like people are going, some people will read this paper and say, okay, I need to do this, 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 and this, and I'm going to be jacked like Arnold. No, you're not. You're going to be a normal, healthy human being. Be grateful for that. Um, if you want to be jacked like Arnold, do what Arnold did. Um, it's not necessarily illegal. Okay. Um, so yeah, not that yeah. I'm saying anything about the, the, the great Arnold. But. <laughs> yeah. And it is important to know, like, obviously there's a different difference between physiological and super physiological, you know? Um, but I think most people are aware. And obviously if we're talking about testosterone replacement therapy, like there are some other, we'll call it caveats that are specific to muscle to a degree, like we often see an increase in sex hormone binding globulin as someone ages, right? We often see that in a normal, you know, free living human, as they age, you see differences in these other hormones that potentially signal a cascade, basically increase sex hormone binding globulin. Whereas if you supply exogenous testosterone, you basically, this is not completely accurate, but you're basically going to lead to a higher percentage of that being free testosterone right? So you're actually, and depending on your pinning frequency, your administration frequency, I should say, like you can manipulate that even further, right? But you could basically get to a situation where you have low sex hormone binding globulin, which isn't actually associated with great health outcomes, but it is actually associated with great muscle gain outcomes, <laughs> right? So like it is, it is a completely different situation. Someone having like, let's just say whatever, 500 nanograms per deciliter because I, I measure in nanograms per deciliter because I read a lot of American stuff. Um, or like if you have 500 nanograms, I can even speak 500 nanograms per deciliter as a natural person versus 500 nanograms per deciliter, even like synthetically given, like exogenously given, like it's still going to be different because if you have your, your natural 500 and you have a poor night's sleep or you're like, oh, you know what? I want to have that glass of wine or whatever. Like all of that stuff's going to interact with your testosterone because you have to produce it. Whereas if all you have to do is load up that pin and barrel and go, boom, it's I've already, I, I've administered my testosterone. Like obviously that's completely different. So there are functional differences in that and bringing it back to this conversation. Like if you do fully care about like health longevity, you kind of have to have all this stuff on the table. You know, you have to be like, right, is this something you have to be able to talk to your doctor about this stuff? Now, people will take from that and go, oh, I'm, you know, I'm 30, I'm 32. I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I'm not as, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. Do I go on that TRT? Like realistically, I would rather see someone just clean up their lifestyle, their diet, all that Absolutely. kind of stuff first and foremost like that's clearly the baseline intervention and we're realistically talking about trt and all that kind of stuff when you're like 55 65 75 like older yeah. older age so the, one thing that's scary with this is and, and like i don't look into this a huge amount but one thing that is scary is kind of the development of trt clinics in, in, in places like the states uh, and these are basically just places that have a doctor uh that you can have a phone or even maybe an email consultation with and they will prescribe you your TRT. Um, they'll say, okay, yeah, uh, talking about looking at your symptoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I would say that you've got low testosterone. You're, you're suffering all the side effects. We'll give you TRT. And this is for, you know, young guys in their early 20s. Um, uh, and I think that's absolutely ridiculous. This is, a, it's, a, it's a major conversation that somebody needs to have. Um, because 
it, it's not all you know um unicorns and rainbows and gummy bears it, there there are going to be some negative side effects as well okay um and it, it's like with with women like women going on to hrt it's a it's a it's a major decision to make now uh, it's also uh looked at a lot more socially acceptably um uh, as well but you know there are other things to take into consideration when a woman is going it's not just as, as easy as saying okay woman has is now um menopausal put her straight on to hrt there's a lot of things to take into consideration and that's where a, a doctor and a proper consultation and a proper conversation about the pros and cons and everything is really really important um that's even important like just talking about hrt like people do it with their like whatever 12 13 year old daughter where they'll go oh you need to be on the pill because of whatever you know they'll do that and it's like you this is something that you actually need to discuss like you have to do like a proper case history you know like there's there are side effects to that like blood clots for example like i know so many women that have had like actually had blood clots um as a result well you can't really purely pinpoint that but they were on the pill got blood clots that's one of the side effects of being on the pill you know um so it is one of those things where any medical intervention like you have to weigh up the pros and cons. There is absolutely no biological free lunch here. You know, like you're not getting something for nothing. So I, with, I, with, with anything and not even with a medical intervention, I, I, I think the really important thing to say that is everything that we do in life, there is a pro and a con to it. You know, like even with exercise, loads and loads of pros, the con, less free time. For an example, it, it's, it's still something to take into consideration. Um, you know, uh, yeah, we, we this could this this could go down a, a serious. Time. Oh yeah, so, we could go uh, all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, look, I think that covers the majority of what we want to cover. Um, unless you have anything else to say around muscle mass, strength, longevity, health, whatever. The, the only thing I'll say is like, if somebody is not doing any exercise right now, doing anything is better than nothing. Okay, like uh, and like, uh, I'm sorry, like if if they're listening to your podcast, you know, th this is not going to be the people we're talking about, but. Getting people moving more is, is probably one of the most important things that we can possibly do um, from a, a cardiorespiratory perspective, from a, a musculoskeletal perspective. Our bodies were designed to move. We need to move more. Um, and we don't because of the, the society that we live in right now. Like I be, I'm here. Like, luckily, I'm not sitting down right now. I'm, I'm, I'm standing. But like, I've still been standing in one spot for the past hour and a half or however long we've been talking. Um, not feeling great about that uh but that's the kind of society that we live in and it's easy for people to just spend like eight or nine hours a day sit in front of a desk and then come home and spend another five hours on the couch you know 100 so get active get moving it's literally what we're designed to do like i don't think that's a controversial statement <laughs> none of that we don't do those statements uh, anyway look we're going to wrap it up here as per usual guys you can find all the links to everything below I'm not going to you know take up 20 minutes of your time going through a an exhaustive list of where they can find us and everything however having said that because i know some people listen to this and then they just completely x out of it they don't read anything where can people find you where is the best place to get in contact with you what what services do you offer all that stuff this is your this is your time for a selfless you know or selfish i should say plug yourself marketing whatever you want to call it uh okay yeah, i'll keep it easy for everybody I, i'm over on instagram uh it's be more nutrition or you can just search my name richie Kerwin. Um, and I should pop up uh, if you want my OnlyFans. Oh, wait, sorry, uh, wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, college, college has been hard, man. I got to pay those fees. Um, but yeah, come over to uh, Instagram. I'm over there. Drop me a message. I do coaching with people. Um, I work with a lot of people with uh, cardiovascular disease. 
Um, but I work with a lot of people who just want have general physique goals and health goals as well. Um, and yeah, come say hello. Fantastic. Anyway, guys, we will see you in the next one.